Bibles this evening, the book of Joshua, a longer reading, a shorter sermon, Joshua chapter 11 and 12, Joshua 11 and 12, came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, the king of Shimron, to the king Akshba, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains and the plains south of Chinneroth, in the lowland and in the heights of Dor on the west to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in a multitude with very many horses and chariots. And when all of these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before, the, before Israel." You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Misrephoth. I'm sorry, Misrephoth. Foth? Sorry. And to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor, struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not one left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor, only which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Halak, and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal God, or Gad, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, 
Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. There remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. We'll go back to Ashdod. We'll actually talk about Ashdod in a little bit. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon And all the eastern Jordan plain, one king was Sion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead, from Eroer, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites, in the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chinneroth, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea. The road to Beth Jeshemoth, And southward below the slopes of Pisgah, the other king was Og, king of Bashan, and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants, who dwelt at Ashtaroth and at Edri, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salca, over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Jeshurites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead to the border of Sion, king of Heshbon. These Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. All right, you think you've heard enough names? Just wait. Joshua chapter 12, bear with me as I try not to get my tongue tangled up. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side, that is the west side of the Jordan, from Baal, Gad, and the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak, and the ascent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions, in the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wildernesses, and in the south. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. You can take a tally if you want. The king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish. The king of Eglon won, the king of Gezir, the king of Debir, the king of Geder. The king of Horma, the king of Arad, the king of Libna, the king of Adalam, the king of Makedah, the king of Bethel, the king of Tapua, the king of Hefer, the king of Aphek, the king of Lasharon, the king of Madon, the king of Hazor, the king of Shimron Meron, the king of Akshaf, the king of Tanakh, the king of Megiddo, the king of Kadesh, the king of Jokneam, the king of Dor, in the heights of Dor, the king of the people of Gilgal, one, the king of Terza, one. All the kings, 31. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, our desire is that you would continue in your glorious march throughout all of this world to bring low the kings of men, 
who ally themselves against you, to exalt those kings that make peace through salvation. But Lord, that you would expand your mighty kingdom throughout all this earth so that every tribe, tongue, and nation might be devoted to the cause of the glorious gospel. You are our king, and we need none other than you. And so we follow you as you march through this world, building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. May tonight be part of that glorious kingdom-building work in our hearts and here in this county. We pray this in your name. Amen. Joshua is a story that is filled with much more war than the books that came before, especially the first or the five, really the four books that chronicle Moses' leadership over Israel Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's uh, filled with stories of conquest over various tribes, cities, nations, kings. And all of this is the work of Almighty God. When we get to the book of Judges, an even finer point is made, and that is that God will win in such a fashion so that men who are given to pride may not say, look at what we have done. Now, there is, throughout the early part of Scripture, a common refrain as it relates to the Lord and his people Israel. Israel, whenever there was no leader of them, It is said that they did what was right in their own eyes. And oftentimes that phrase is joined to the phrase, and there was no king in Israel. Now in a moment we'll get to what that actually means, what the significance of it is. But it does not mean that in order for you and I to be well organized that we need a king like the nations. In fact... God would have Israel understand is that they need no king but Christ. This point is driven home time and time and time again, not only in the first five books of the Bible, but really in the book of Joshua, Judges, and then 1 Samuel. So tonight as we look at these two chapters, I want us to closely observe what the heart, what the foundation, what the who the power source is behind Israel's victory and what the significance is even to this day. Two points then that I want to make. The first is the northern conquest and the second, the king who conquers. So the first point is a northern or the northern conquest and then secondly, a king or you could say the king who conquers. Chapter 11 is a record of the northern conquest. Joshua has already, for the most part, cleared out the southland. The south is where the capital of Israel would one day sit, Jerusalem. We read of the king of Jerusalem who was defeated by Joshua and Israel. And in response to these five kings who amassed an army from the south who were defeated by Joshua, their cities sacked, burned to the ground, their kings killed and then hung by the neck until evening time, the tribes of the north hear of this, and they amass what we can only think is an even greater force because of what is said of it. It is said that it is a force that rivals the sand upon the shore, and there were many horses and chariots. This is truly 
a mighty force amassed against Israel. But this is not the only time there was a mighty force amassed against the people of God. Uh, We see this uh, with Israel and Egypt. We have seen this in the past with Moses' own leadership. These are the kinds of circumstances that God loves. And he calls us to see the nations of the earth in the same way that the great heroes of the Old Testament did. Already I have spoken of the way David saw Goliath versus the way the rest of Israel saw Goliath. Israel saw Goliath and they said, he's so big, we can't beat him. David saw Goliath and said, he's so big, I can't miss. That to me speaks of a heart that is compelled and transformed by apprehending not just the glory of God, but his power and the potential for God to humiliate those who trust in princes and in chariots and in horses and in the strength of men. And so what we see, even in the book of Joshua, is though there are two physical forces doing battle, What is really happening on the side of Israel is God is the one who is fighting for them and giving them victory. And so though it is in the Old Testament a predominantly physical earthly battle where it will later be in the New Testament primarily spiritual as we put on the full armor of God despite this physical conflict, Israel has the Lord Yahweh fighting for them. Or if we are to think of it properly, Israel is hearing the voice of God and operating as they follow him. They are doing what he commands. And when they do that, what happens? They win. They are given the victory. And so as soon as this mighty force is amassed, We have to ask the question already, who can stand against the Lord? It isn't which force can the world amass to stand against Reformation OPC, right? We have some relatively robust highbrow theologians in this church, and I'm sure we could hold our own in a debate against modern atheists. But we have the world, the flesh, and the devil to contend with. Three great foes. One of them lives inside your own heart, and you often lose to him more than you do to the world, probably more often. And so as we look at this battle that we are being sent out into, we ought not look at ourselves merely and say, do I have the strength to win the day? Because the answer to that question is, apart from the Lord at work among us, None can stand. So here's this mighty force, a vast army. And the Lord turns to Joshua, as it were. That's the very next thing we read. Joshua, the Lord speaks to Joshua and he says, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. Now, this kind of communication is incredibly encouraging on the eve of battle. Joshua sees the army, and then he hears from the Lord, you're going to win. Now that proclamation of victory is then followed by instructions for how to do it. You know what hamstringing a horse is? Some of you do. 
It's kind of brutal. It prevents the horse from running because you slice the back tendon off the leg. You just cut it. Now, what this communicates is the Lord's clear command to devote everything that is owned by these heathen nations to utter destruction, to wreck these implements of war. There is something of the covenantal connection that as unbelievers live in this world, everything they touch is tarnished by their idolatry. And so here, God gives very clear instructions as to how to defeat these armies. And we see that, the instruction and the carrying out of that plan in verses 6 through 15. And in verse 15, the Lord gives clear instructions in verse 6. And then in verse 15, this is what we read. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua continues acts of obedience, and this is why Israel had victory. Because God gave it to them. Without the Lord's help, as Joshua and Israel learned earlier with those of Ai, they could not win without God on their side. Here God drives that point home again and again and again. I am fighting for those who are my beloved covenant children. And in order to win, in order to reap the victory that God has in store for those who are covenantally united to him, you must live in obedience and walk in obedience with God. Now, this is a very important lesson for the church in every age. God has promised victory. The problem that we have is that we often do not believe God, that what he promises will come, that we do not believe that it is possible through the means that he has given. How can it be? How can God win with Pitchers and lamps and 300 men. But Gideon learned how God can win. We ought to learn the same. That God can win. That God can do so through the means that he prescribes. And sometimes God goes in a, in a rather roundabout fashion, or at least appears that way to us. Why is it this way, God? Do you think Gideon asked that question on the way to battle? i got 10,000 guys here. I've got 300 now. What are you thinking? Now, let me give you a modern-day example of what I mean. Have you all heard of this new television show called The Chosen? It's a third commandment violation writ large. Basically, what it is is a televised version of what Mel Gibson was trying to do with The Passion of the Christ. Not only do they have someone play Jesus, which is a very clear third commandment violation, but they use extra biblical accounts to flesh out messianic character. And so you have a group of Christians who are saying of this show, I think it's called The Chosen. Choose something else is what I would say. (laughs) This is going to reach so many people And what are they actually saying? 
that the Spirit could not reach through word, prayer, and sacrament. So, it would be as though God said to Joshua on the eve of battle, all right, here is how you win. And then Joshua says, okay, I got it. All right, guys, this is what we're going to do instead, all right? You heard God, but I've got a better plan. This is the very sentiment of Satan at the tree. God has a plan for Adam and for Eve, and it is a good plan. And then Satan comes to them using similar language by saying, I have a better plan. Here is the plan. Let's scrap God's plan. We're going to do it this way. And what happened? Well, we see what happened. That's how we get the Amorites. That's how we get the Hivites, the Girgashites, and all the ites. Israel could conquer. We can conquer and have conquered, but only in the power of God according to his revealed will as to how we are to win the victory. Now, that's just one example, and I'm not trying to pick on that show, but the fact of the matter is men are very good at devising other means in addition to the means that God has established for his church to grow. And so if we wish to have conquest, we must follow God's revealed will. Now, God does not speak to us in the church in the same way that he convened with Joshua. And so the session doesn't get together on Tuesdays once a month and say, Lord, can you give us clear, direct instructions about what to do next. He has given us this. And through the Spirit's help, through wisdom applied, through the careful study and help of a plurality of elders, we endeavor to walk according to God's instructions. But as it relates to the building of the kingdom, God has clearly laid down in Matthew chapter 28 how we are to have conquest. This is what you to do. Go into all the world, baptizing, which comes first, and then teaching, right? Baptizing and then teaching. The whole counsel of God's word. And so we go out into the world and we lay claim of, ter- lay claim of territory in the name of Christ for his glory according to his plan. It's that simple. So one of the jobs that I don't have as a pastor is trying to come up with some newfangled way to make it work faster, better. You know what I mean? I've got it. I have the whole game plan laid out for me. And so as I go into this job, I know word, prayer, sacrament. Word, prayer, sacrament. And what God will do through those simple outward means is something glorious. Moses had two kings. Joshua had 31. How many kings has the church seen fall? Either by grace, like a Constantine, depending on what actually happened with him, or others. I think the question for us is, is Christ still in the king-conquering business? And the answer to that question is yes, and even more so than we see in the Old Testament, because Christ is now come, and he has risen, and he has ascended to the throne. 
All right, I know this is a sermon about the book of Joshua. But it would not be helpful for us to read these and go, so what's the point today? Joshua was victorious because God gave him the victory as one who obeyed God. Remember what Joshua heard when he came to the commander of the army of the Lord? And he said, are you for us or for our enemies? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Which means what? That Christ is marching through the world, and what we are called to do is march in the direction that he is going according to the way that he has prescribed. That is how we will know victory. We ride his wake, as it were. Second point, a king who conquers. And so in chapter 12... We read of all the victories of Moses and Joshua. And I entitled this sermon, what did I entitle the sermon? The Conquest of Moses and Joshua. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek. Where we speak of the great heroes of the faith, the faithful church fathers like Athanasius. Athanasius Contramundum was the statement when one man stood against a tide of false theologians and endeavored to establish orthodox theology pertaining to doctrine of God and that of Christ Jesus. And in fact, in the back of our Psalter hymnals, there is the Athanasian Creed, and it is robust. It's a hard-hitting, you can tell he wrote it in the midst of, of a fight against false theologians. And then you have others that came after him. You had men like Wycliffe and Jan Hus, the goose. You had Calvin and Luther before him and Zwingli and Bollinger and Rutherford and other great Puritans and some of their names we know and some of them we do not know. Or we read of him and say, maybe I should name my kid after this guy. He's, he's pretty great. But none of these men and the great women of history would be who they are apart from Christ conquering first their hearts. There is no kingdom without a king. Christ is on the march in the book of Joshua. In fact, he's been on the march, on the move, since the beginning. He gave to Adam and to his wife children. He called men and women out of these perverse places and calls them to fear him. Human history is a record of Christ marching through earth and amassing for himself a covenant people who are called by his name, called not only to be part of his kingdom, to be children of the house, but to be soldiers in the work of building and fighting for that kingdom. And so when we see the victories of Moses and Joshua... It is a story, it is a testimony of God's faithfulness, of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. And so we learn this lesson, that the kings of earth can only be conquered God's way. Now, let's go to 1 Samuel real quickly. This is one of my favorite stories in Scripture because it drives home to us the folly of Israel's desiring a king like the nations. In 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines steal the ark. What a bunch of fools, because they're going to get it. We go back to Ashdod. Do you know who the Anakim were? Do you know who Joshua killed? It'd be like hobbits fighting trolls. It's, these are giants, 9, 10, 11-foot men. 
And Joshua killed many of them. And Ashdod later, the Philistines, this is of the company that Goliath was from, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, that's the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat, and they set it by Dagon in the house of Dagon. Now, Dagon was an image of one of their gods, and he was sort of like half fish, half man. The Philistines were a seafaring people, and so it made sense that their gods often took the form of sea beings. When the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in the place again. I love this. They have to help their god up. What a, the irony is rich. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon, both of the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into the Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And then everybody got sick. And you know what they did? They got rid of the ark. So God can use means, but God doesn't have to use means. We would call this, and rightly so, miraculous. Except it wasn't the kind of miracle that we often think of and ask for. It wasn't a good miracle. It was an act of divine judgment against the Philistines, not unlike what God did to the Egyptian gods in the book of Exodus. He humiliated Dagon. And subsequently, the Philistines. God was saying to Israel here in 1 Samuel, right after the book of Judges, to a very lost and wayward people, I'm the only king you need. And yet, what did Israel call for over and over again? What happens after 1 Samuel 5? We want a king like the nations. And Samuel warned them, you don't want that kind of king. He's going to take your men, and he's going to bring them into his battles. He's going to tax you. He's going to do all of these things that you don't like, all because Israel, you think the path to victory requires a king like the nations. It requires a program that will reach those whom God cannot reach. It requires a a kind of personality in the pulpit that others lost will go, man, he's he's the JFK of preachers, right? Once they started televising presidential debates, guys like Nixon had no hope. You know what I mean? Why was Saul chosen king? Because he was taller and more handsome than anyone in Israel. (laughs) It kind of sounds like 21st century America. It sounds like every age of men. And yet, what is required? What is required is that we follow the one king who is the only king of heaven and earth. The only one who can unseat kings at a whim and he can take their power and he can give it to the weak and to the lowly. This is the folly that we are to embrace. 
For God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. What Israel should have learned and what we need to be learning from the book of Joshua is that there need be no king in Israel save Christ. Now that does not mean, and what I'm not saying is Israel didn't need a politic. They had one. They were a republic. (laughs) They had elders. All that was established a long time ago with Jethro. Why did Israel want a king? And it wasn't because they were without politic. They thought that they could hide behind the strength of one man. And they were half right. They need a God-man. We need a God-man. Not just a man, but we need a commander of the army of the Lord. And in the same way, the church needs the same thing. We need no king but Christ. I'm not your king. No man is your king. Christ is king. And when I speak here, I'm speaking particularly of the mission and the work of the church of Jesus Christ. The church is in the business of kingdom toppling. If you doubt it, just go read church history. And what you will see is that empire after empire have crumbled under their own weight of decadence and immorality, and the church just keeps plugging along. And not just plugging along, just making it. But the church has expanded and grown. She has been given the territory that belongs to these former kings. And she will be here long after they are gone. Israel needs no king but Christ. So how does Christ conquer now? Well, I've said it already and I'll repeat it. Word, prayer, sacrament. And you say, that sounds so simple. And it is. It is at times offensively simple. It flies in the face of quote-unquote conventional wisdom. It need not be improved. It does not need a marketing scheme. The kingdom of Christ has been around long before social media. In fact, the spirit is all that is really needed, save the word. Where there is word and spirit, that is where God presides. And Christ has promised to his church, even as he led Israel in the book of Joshua, that he will continue to fight. The question for us is this. Will we fight with him as he has instructed? Let's pray. Lord.